The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you as we come again, as we gather week after week, that we don't have to rely on last week's grace or yesterday's mercies, but that there are new mercies every morning. And so we are pleading with you in this moment to come by your Spirit, through your Word, and make much of Jesus that we can love Him with all of our hearts and walk in further obedience to Him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to our text today, we've moved on from this this section about Christian behavior, how to live out our identity. Now we're kind of moving to the last section of 1 Peter. He's going to take us back into suffering and and frame it for us and help us realize as a, a church how we're supposed to walk in it. As I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about what is, what is Peter getting after, and it, it, reali- it occurred to me that he's getting after rejection. He's been talking about rejection through this whole book, and nobody likes rejection. I've never met anyone that likes to be shunned or put off from a group, and we've all felt it. Now, perhaps it was in a relationship. You thought things were going well, and all of a sudden there's a, a rift or a break, and it leaves you sad and confused. I mean, rejection is built in to our souls. I can remember, like out on the, the elementary playground, watching kids picking teams for kickball, and just in my soul feeling anxiety and nervousness and fear of when exactly I would get picked. What was I afraid of, right? I was afraid of some kind of rejection. And it stings all the more when it comes in an unexpected way or at an unexpected time, like an unexpected breakup or a friend that suddenly turns on you. It's, it's hard when a place that once made you feel safe and whole suddenly feels uncertain and shattered and broken. So often, as I'm pastoring people, these are the moments, and even in my own life, that leave the deepest wounds that take kind of the longest amount of time to recover from, when we felt rejected, especially unexpectedly. We're made in the image of God, who is love, that means we're made to love and be loved, God first and then others. And when that feels like it's come to an abrupt halt, we can kind of lose our bearings and not know where to go or what to do. When in lots of ways, many Christians have felt this way over the last decade in our society. Society continues to legislate things that God calls sin on a wave of what seems like very popular support. Christianity, or at least many of the social norms associated with it, have begun to feel foreign in this place that we live. In fact, much of the cultural capital or influence that we felt like we had on morality has gone away. Which means either the church has to change 
or the culture will be increasingly at odds with the church, and the church must follow Jesus. This is picked up in pace over the last 20 years or so, although I've listened to Pastor John's sermons from 1994 in 1 Peter, and he's saying a lot of the same things. This is always something Christians are going to feel as people who are exiles in a foreign land. But because of the way it's picked up, it's left many of us, many of you, many of you watching, wondering, nervous, afraid, unsettled about what's the next 20 years going to look like. I've heard people say, I don't know if I'd even want to have any more children and bring them into a world like this. There's a nervousness. And this rejection has stung all the more because of the speed and the unexpected ways of much of how it has come. So if you were to look up the beginning symptoms of shock in a medical dictionary, you'd find things like anxiety, agitation, confusion, restlessness. And so we're in that place. And then 2020 happened. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a joke now. 2020 happened. But I mean, 2020 has happened. It's been crazy. So you, you take that... Then you pile on all sorts of social unrest. What do we do with that? You pile on COVID-19. You pile on an election on top of this general shift. And I think we could all admit to experiencing some of these symptoms of shock. Anxiety, agitation, confusion, and restlessness. So what that tells us is the circumstances. Those are the circumstances we're living in. But a deeper question, the one, that, the one that Peter keeps going after, is not how do you change the world around you, though that's important to understand, but what's our diagnosis as Christians? Sometimes we need to step back from the fray and diagnose our own hearts so that we can begin to know what treatment is necessary. Here's what I mean. Last year, It was painful, like hurt to our bones to hear that our little man was going to need open heart surgery. I remember just feeling like I got punched. Oh, But it would have done us no good in that moment to pretend like we didn't have a problem. But in that moment, it was a good thing to have all that pain revealed, even if it was a treatment that made us tremble. And I I really think God is at work among His people in these days and in this text to free us from the heart problems of hoping in comfort, control, and solutions that are only temporary. He wants us to see that diagnosis, to look at ourselves and all of the ugliness that has come out in this season and say, I mean to set you free. I mean to set you free from your need for comfort and control and solutions that are only temporary. So as we dive into this text, we're going to see that Peter wants us to see three things. One, he wants us to expect suffering. Two, he wants us to exult in suffering. And three, he wants us to know that we'll be empowered in our suffering. So let's dive in. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. So what I want to do is ask the question of this verse, why should we not be surprised? Why would Peter say that? Because it feels to me like we're a little bit surprised. So why would Peter say, don't be surprised? But first what I want to do is pause on the word beloved. Sometimes we can move past this too quickly. This is our ultimate stability in suffering. Knowing that we're loved by God and therefore, and this matters so much, suffering does not signal God's rejection of you. Suffering does not signal God's leaving you. This is our ultimate stability in suffering. Knowing that we're loved by God. It would be hard, maybe impossible, at least in my experience, if in our suffering we also needed to wonder, does this mean God's rejecting me? But that's not the right question. He's not. Remember, God called Jesus His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased, and yet He went to the cross to suffer for sins. If you're feeling this societal rejection, the unsettling shift of the culture under your feet, or simply have other fiery trials that have come into your life, you must remember you're loved and let that be your foundation under your feet. If you don't know you're loved by God, if you don't remember your beloved, you're not going to make it or you're going to stumble through the trials. When God looks on you, in all of your brokenness, in all of your messiness, in all of the diagnosis of control and all this stuff that we're running after, God sees you clothed in the righteousness of His Son. Isn't that amazing in light of all the sinning we keep doing? You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's how God sees you. He loves you like He loves His Son. He calls you His son or daughter. You are beloved. Your suffering doesn't signal rejection. Peter emphasized that we're children of God in chapter 1 over and over again. Your suffering is not signal rejection. Rather, it's an astounding thing that you are beloved children of God that can cry out, Abba, Father, just like Jesus did in the garden. And our Father will condescend, stoop, stoop low to come and help you from His throne of grace. You are loved. You are beloved. And I say that and I pause here because Peter did. <laughs> he knew they would need it. He knew that they would need to remember who they were. So that with, with that reminder of love, Peter tells them not to be surprised. Why? Why should they not be surprised? I just want to give you two reasons. Number one, Jesus predicted it. And if you read 1 Peter, hopefully you've seen more and more throughout this whole book, Peter is just quoting Jesus to us all the time. So Jesus predicted it. Number two, Peter has already told them who they are as exiles and sojourners who are not home. So number one, Jesus predicted it in some of his last words to his disciples. Here's what John 15, 20-21 says. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So you can imagine 
These words ringing in Peter's ears. These were some of the last words Jesus said to him. Listen, you're going to suffer. They're going to persecute me. They're going to kill me. They're going to do the same to you because they don't know. They don't know my Father. We have a crucified King. And sometimes we forget that. It's not popular to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior because we are proclaiming that we are not our own masters and not our own saviors, the two principles that govern the culture's idea of happiness today. Right? What does our culture want more than to be our own master, to be our own Savior? And when we are Christians to proclaim the name of Jesus, we're saying you can't save yourself and you can't do whatever you want. You have to follow Jesus. It is not popular to call the things that people run to for their happiness and their identity and all of who they are when we say not only do we not agree but we call it sin. You need to repent of that. So Jesus says in this world we will have trouble. And Peter has already told them who they are. All the way back in chapter 1 verse 1 he starts out by saying you are elect exiles. Elect exiles, you're just setting them apart right away. Listen, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. You're never going to feel at home here. Set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord and for sprinkling with His blood. Jesus is Lord was and should still be a political statement stating allegiance to another kingdom. That's what that was when they said it. Caesar's not Lord. Not part of this kingdom. Not hoping in this thing. Jesus is Lord. He's our king. He's our hope. He's who we follow. We can't stop proclaiming or obeying Jesus because we bow to our only king and believe only in him is there any true freedom or happiness. So even when the world persecutes us and says, you hate us, we say, no, we love you. We can't do anything else. We can't go anywhere else. This is the only place we know where there's words of eternal life. We bow to our King for our eternal happiness and we want you to get in here with us. But oftentimes it doesn't make you many friends. In fact, Peter says that often they will revile you and evil, even call you evildoers. They'll call what's good evil and what's evil good And this is simply part of the call of counting all else as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. We take up our cross and follow Jesus who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If you look throughout church history, you will find a well-worn path of rejection, rejection, persecution, and even death. So really, the world... This slice of history we're living in has been the exception for Christians, not the norm. So Bethlehem, let us not be surprised at the fiery trials as if something strange was happening. Now maybe you're wondering if your general suffering is in view here. Maybe it's not persecution for the name of Jesus, but you just have a disease or have brokenness or sadness or you're depressed. Well, it's not the main thing in view for Peter. Here, persecution is. However, there are truths that still apply. All suffering, whether chronic pain or callous persecution, comes from the brokenness of a sin-infested world that is not as it should be. 
And as people who know we are not yet home, Peter would say, you should not be surprised, whether it's criticism or cancer, whether it's persecution or pain, whether it's mocking or mental health struggles, all is a part of this brokenness. We are not surprised with it, and we know we are loved in it. Peter says, these trials that we're not supposed to be surprised by are coming to test us. Does this mean it's a pass or fail test? One of the things I find as a pastor is that one of the, the hardest things for people is when they're suffering and they know they should trust God, they feel like, I don't trust Him enough. So shame gets added to suffering. So if you don't suffer well enough, do you, do you fail the test? What does testing mean? Well, we've already seen this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. to 7. Here's what it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the testing God is bringing is His testing in His sovereign goodness to you as His child in order to refine your faith and focus your hope and your joy solely on Jesus Christ. In other words, what others mean for evil for you, God means for good. He is carefully as a good father and a a soul-level physician giving us the prescription we need to wean us off of the soul idols of comfort and control so that we can find soul-level rest in the unshakable reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Testing isn't pass or fail. The testing is God's testing to refine your faith. We are not surprised. We are loved. And we know God is working these things, testing us refining us for our ultimate good to give us a faith that lasts, that's sturdy, that's steadfast. So that's number one. We expect it. We're not surprised by it. Number two, we exult in it. This is distinctly Christian. Peter calls us to rejoice in suffering. Here's what he says in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So one of the commands is don't be surprised. And the second command here is rejoice. When are we supposed to rejoice? As we share in Christ's sufferings. Why are we supposed to rejoice? So that you can rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So notice a couple things he's saying in verse 13. First, notice these are not just our sufferings, which is really encouraging and makes them all the more significant. For those of us that are children of God, we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ isn't here on earth anymore, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are His witnesses. We are His church, the embodiment of His presence here on earth. When we suffer for the sake of His name, we share in His sufferings. Right? Paul even said he was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We are identified with Him, continuing His mission and His purposes for the sake of His glory. 
You are with Him in these sufferings, not alone in them. You are in Christ and He is with you until the end of the age. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.17. If we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It means we're going to own everything. It's all going to be ours. How? Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We're with Him. We're in His presence. In our suffering with Christ, we can rejoice because it proves our identity as children of God and points forward to the day when we will be glorified with Him. Our rejoicing and suffering with Christ, so as we rejoice in this suffering, as the world looks on, as we look on at each other and we rejoice, it shows a people that is looking forward to their permanent inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, rather than the perishable, defiled, and fading earthly comforts that the world will run after. So we rejoice in our sufferings knowing we get to be with Christ in our sufferings. Right? We, we all know this experientially. When do you feel closest to Christ? Normally in the brokenness. Normally in the valleys. Normally in the most painful spots. For some reason there's this, this sharing in His sufferings, this fellowship that draws us near. And we rejoice knowing that we'll be with Christ forever in glory. These fiery trials are refining our faith into the kind that can rejoice with joy inexpressible and glorified as it looks forward to glory with Jesus forever. Now even as I say this, I want to be clear about something. Peter does not say trials suddenly get easy. And sometimes, as good Reformed folks who trust the Lord and His sovereignty, we quote Scripture and we just kind of act like, well, so, so that's it. Right? I told you Romans 8.28, you're good now, right? He's, he's your rock. But he doesn't say it gets easy. He calls them trials. He calls it suffering. Sometimes we can hear this doctrine and then feel bad when we're struggling and suffering or when we even want to escape suffering. But we're identified with the suffering of Christ. And I want you to remember what His faithful and perfect suffering looked like as He was rejected and crucified. So helpful to me in my suffering. How many times I've, I've been in suffering, I've wanted to give up, and I've started to feel shame about it, and I've just had to go read Mark 14, where it records Jesus in the Gospels sweating drops of blood, falling to the ground and pleading for the Father to take this cup away from Him. Like, that's the picture. Drops of blood falling on His faith, pleading, Father, all things are possible for you. Please take this away. That's our Savior. That's the God-man in His trials. Right? Sometimes when we hear these rejoice in trials sermons, we suddenly picture Jesus chilling on a beach and calmly listening to great is thy faithfulness or oceans, right? depending on what generation you are. But that's not the picture of the Bible. It's just not what we see. What did He do? He cried out to his father. What did he do? He, he asked it to be taken away. And then what did he do when the answer was no? Well, he remembered he was a beloved son meant to do the father's will as his greatest joy. He looked forward to the joy set before him in suffering. So what do we do in our suffering? We cry out to our father. 
We cry out with other believers. We cry with other believers and ask them to help us remember Jesus. This is one of the sweetest things we get to do as believers is walk together through suffering and with tears acknowledging how painful it is to say, but remember Jesus. Remember this isn't purposeless. Remember he's not finished. Remember he's not done with you. Remember this doesn't signal rejection. Remember you get to fellowship with Christ. Remember this is leading somewhere. Remember you can cry out to him. Remember you have access to him. Remember. We remember we're beloved children meant to do the Father's will. We rejoice in suffering because we get more of Jesus now as we fellowship with him in it and because we know we get the fullness of Jesus forever through it. We're not surprised and we know to run to our Father in the body of Christ for help to get through the sometimes suffocating and horrific pain that comes with it. We rejoice not because we like it. Christians are not masochists. We rejoice because we know who we're with We know where we're going, and we know what this suffering is ultimately doing for us, even though we cry our way through it. Number three, verse 14, we're going to be empowered in our suffering. Look at this amazing verse. It says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The word for bless simply means happiness. I think it's fair to say it's a deep soul level happiness in Jesus. When people insult you because of your worship of or obedience to Jesus, you will be empowered to rejoice, to be genuinely happy. How? Well, it's just the gift of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing gift we have in the Holy Spirit. What an amazing ministry this is. I don't know how many times as a pastor people have said, am I going to make it? I just go, yeah. How do you know? Because you have the Holy Spirit. I don't know any of the ins and outs. I don't know all the circumstances. I don't know how exactly he's going to do it, but I know the Holy Spirit's in you and will rest upon you in your suffering What a gift the Holy Spirit is. The story of the church in Acts is the story of the name of Jesus being proclaimed amidst persecution. So we go there and we say, well, how is that happening? How are they spreading the name amidst persecution? How are they still rejoicing? Acts 5, they left rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the name. Well, listen to Acts 9.31. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. So here's a people radically sold out to King Jesus. Walking in the fear of the Lord. Not, not fearing society, not fearing what's around them. Fearing King Jesus. Bowing to King Jesus. Whatever you say, we'll do. Whatever you tell us, we'll go. We'll do whatever you say. We're sold out to you. You've saved us. You're the purpose of everything. We're your people. We're going wherever you tell us to go. Even if it means you're going to go up here and get killed. And, and multiplied. Well, how do they keep doing that? They didn't do that in their own strength. They did it. In the comfort of the Holy 
Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the way that Jesus keeps His promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age, to never leave us or forsake us. And our text today holds out a promise for the pain of rejection and persecution. The Holy Spirit will rest upon us with particular power to empower our joy in Jesus in our suffering. Again, Peter is mainly talking about persecution here, but this is certainly true of all suffering that comes from the brokenness of this sin-infested world. How will you make it? How will you rejoice? How can you obey this command? How do you get up another day? How do you get out of bed in the morning? The Spirit of God and of glory will rest upon you. Listen to Ephesians three sixteen to 19 It says, According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what's the Spirit going to do as He dwells there? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what's the Spirit going to do in these moments? He's going to do that. He's going to come in power so that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. And so you're rooted in His love. The Spirit will give you glimpses of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that you know it in a personal way. The Spirit will come and sustain you in the love of Christ and remind you of His glory that's going to be one day revealed and vindicate all your suffering. And as you remember that glory, you will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory even through tears and obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. What a ministry the Holy Spirit has. What would we do without Him? So if you're reading these commands and going, I I am surprised. I'm not rejoicing. What's the step for you? Pray. Let's confess I, I do love comfort. I, mean, I do love control. I, I like getting my way. I like when people think highly of me. I like not wearing masks. I like doing what I want. I don't like that you assign me seats every Sunday. I like to choose my seat. Right? I mean, you do. Right? We've heard about it. This is the kind of soul-level control that we all want. So what do you do? You just confess and say, I need the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled afresh. I know He dwells in me, but I need His help. And my prayer this week has been that as we hear this promise of help, that it would settle our souls. I've been praying for God to come and fix our eyes on Jesus again this morning and for the Spirit of God and glory to come and help us, that we would move. And this is a miracle, right? That we would move from shocked and shaken to settled and sustained. Like I've been praying, not just a little bit, like that would get in your head and you'd have another sermon to listen to, but I've been praying that as I, I preach and you hear what God is doing and how He's with you and how He promises His Spirit to rest upon you, that you would look out there and go, I don't have to be shocked anymore. I don't have to be unsettled. I can be sustained and settled in my soul. He's going to be with me. 
These sufferings are, are taking me somewhere. They're doing something. That I'm praying in this moment, whether you're watching on the live stream, or you're out in the commons in the cheap seats, or you're in here, that whatever you've been unsettled about, the Lord would come now by His Spirit and settle your soul that He's for you. He's with you. I don't care what you've done this week, where you've sinned, what suffering you're going through, how much you're doubting. He's with you. Man, He's for you. He sent His Son to die for you and purchase you. He's not going to quit halfway through the job. That we would not be surprised, but remember we're loved and rejoice and expect new help and hope and hardship. The reason it should be so settling is because of how constant it is. Like the reason things are unsettling is because they're so uncertain. When can we cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit? Always. Like if you had un, un, I can't even think of the word, undeniable access, you always had access. You like you had all the time to all the power in the world. Would you take advantage of it? Like in that first week, if you could have snapped your fingers and gotten the toilet paper you wanted, you would have done it. But we don't pray. Right? You'll spend a half hour on Amazon looking for toilet paper, but we won't pray. It should be settling in our souls that we have 24-7 access to the throne room of grace from the king of the universe. How often is Jesus with us? All the time. He never leaves us or forsakes us. We talked at the beginning about the shock of rejection. Jesus was rejected so that we could know we're eternally accepted all the time. Jesus took our curse so that we could walk in eternal blessing. Jesus took our shame so that we could walk into the light free of any fear or rejection. Jesus hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you would never be forsaken by God? Not for one moment. He doesn't forsake you when you don't do great at your devotionals. He doesn't forsake you when you do that sin again. He doesn't forsake you when you doubt in your suffering because it's not about you. Right? It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the bigness of your Savior. This is what it means to be a child of God. God has made you His child to bring glory to His name. He loves you. And He's going to work for your good in His glory. They're not at odds. One of my favorite passages, the one that I just instantly went to for our, our devotionals on Wednesdays when this pandemic hit was Romans 8. And especially how it ends in such a stunning crescendo of triumph for those who belong to Jesus Christ. We can be settled instead of shocked and sustained instead of shaken, even in the midst of suffering, because God will keep all of His promises to us in Jesus Christ, and He will do it for the sake of His name and the good of His people by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say these next sentences, and I'm praying that you'll really believe them. We don't need to hope in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. We really don't. You can lay all your other hopes aside. That is one that will last and is living. We don't need the acceptance of anyone but our Father. So some of you are just wrestling today with feeling rejected, not accepted, 
And that, that just stings you to the core of your being. You don't need anyone else's acceptance besides your Father's. And Jesus paid for it, not because you're awesome, but because He's good. And He's merciful. And He's gracious. So your acceptance isn't based on your performance, and it never has been. We have a merciful high priest who knows our suffering and intercedes in our behalf. Therefore, we need not be surprised by the trials, but we can rejoice even through tears as we are empowered to find our joy in Jesus alone. So I want to end this sermon by having all of you close your eyes and just listen. I'm just going to read the end of Romans 8. And I'm going to pray. And I just want you to hear what Peter is saying to you right now through Romans chapter 8. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Father, we come now and we thank you that you have spoken to us abundantly in your word about all the promises you've made to us. You've you've helped us see why you bring these fiery trials upon us. You've helped us process them. You've told us where to go. You've given us a body of Christ to do that with. And so, Father, in this moment, I pray that we would lay down every other place we find security. We lay down every other thing we hope in more than you. Lay down our our need for comfort, our need for control, our need to get what we want. Instead, come to you, the one who is sovereignly working in our waiting and working for our good because we are children of God. So we cry right now, Abba, Father, come 
and give us the help we need to endure these trials. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.